we're going to be beginning a conversation as a church through some of the great one another passages in the Bible. We're going to be kind of ramping up as we head into the fall, talking about small groups and all of that. And so we are going to be uh, working our way through the one another passages, some of them. Uh, but this morning, I just felt led of the Lord to spend time in a parable. And it's not part of a broader series. If you are a part of State Road for a long time, you know I tend to like to operate within kind of a, a series, like we work our way through a book or something like that. However, this morning is just kind of a one-off. I just want to talk about two parables that we find in Matthew 13, two very short parables, and this is a well-traveled portion of Scripture. If you've been a Christian for a long time, I'm sure you're aware of these passages, and if you're not, that's okay. You're going to become aware today. Uh, Matthew 13, verses 44 through 46, it says this, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Something to know about parables, when Jesus uh, spoke in parables, uh, generally parables make one point. And you can kind of get in trouble by reading too much into other details of the parable. And so really I think the thing that when you're looking at a parable of Jesus, one of the helpful things to do is to focus in on the central main meaning of what he's saying. The point of both of these parables, the thing that God is, I think, really trying to say to us through these two illustrative examples is the same, that the treasure of Christ, the treasure of life in him, is so valuable, so exciting, so exceedingly wonderful and excellent, and it brings us such joy that losing everything on earth but getting the kingdom of heaven is a happy trade-off. A treasure and a pearl of great value, these are the words that God uses to describe the exciting discovery of Jesus. And it's interesting to me that Jesus does this in two parables. Like, you, you could look at this and say, well, why not, what does the second one add to the first one? Why does he sort of repeat himself with these two things? And it's possible as very often happens in the Bible, that God is simply repeating himself because it's something of great import. There's a lot of weight here. He really wants us to see it again. It's worth repeating. I think that's certainly here. Uh, we see God repeating himself an awful lot, like Joseph's two dreams. If you know the story of Joseph in the Old Testament, you, both, the meaning of those dreams is the same. Why does he do it twice? Later, Joseph will tell Pharaoh, when Pharaoh has a double dream, meaning the same thing, he says, well, God has repeated himself. It is surely going to come to pass. I think God has this habit throughout Scripture of repeating himself in areas that are extra important. But I do think there's one difference between these two parables that's worth seeing, perhaps. The first, in the first instance, the person happened upon the treasure in the normal course of his life when he wasn't looking for him, looking for it. You can just kind of picture somebody walking through a field kind of kicking rocks and goes, whoa, what is that? And in the second one, that person found the pearl of great value as a result of a deliberate search. 
he's been studying pearls for a long time. He's a professional at it. And he goes around looking into pearls, and here he's found it. It's kind of like somebody who goes yard sailing, and they find that one item for sale for 25 cents that's worth a million. <laughs> kind of like that kind of deal. And they know, because they're an expert, what they found. And so we kind of see that in the first instance, and this, these are pictures of how different people come to know Christ. Uh, and we've heard all kinds of different stories about people who come to know Christ. Some are really genuinely seekers. I mean, they're really digging into this stuff. They're studying it. They're looking into all these different world religions and what different people believe. And then they come upon the gospel, and they go, wow, this is qualitatively different. This has grace at the center of it, and none of these other world religions do. There is a completely different excellence and superior value and worth to what I'm seeing in the gospel than what I've seen in all these other pearls that I've been looking at. And other people, though, are just, honestly, they are just going about their business. Their encounter with Jesus happened in the strangest place, you know, it happened in a convenience store or any, who knows. They just are going through the normal course of their day, and suddenly they are struck with the truth of the gospel, and they're ambushed by it. No matter how you first discovered Jesus, the main point is this. They both found something that they recognized was of such value and worth that even though it would cost everything to obtain it, it was completely worth it, and in fact, they were filled with joy in the trade-off. Those of us who have found Jesus know what a treasure he is. We found in him a hope that will never fail. We have found a true joy and a lasting satisfaction. We have found a better and an abiding possession. Those who have not found Jesus may argue with us about who he is and what exactly is his significance, but they would have to concede that they have not found such a treasure of rest and joy and hope and life as we have found in anything or anyone else. They're still looking. But for those who have found Jesus, those who have stumbled upon the treasure or located the pearl, they've come to a place of rest. I found it. My search is over. Now, there's something, though, here that is really worth um, spending some time with. I know from experience that it is possible over the years, as you walk with Christ, that the joy and wonder of that time when we first discovered Jesus can evaporate out of our hearts and leave behind just doctrines and truths and a big pile of words. I, I swear to you, if I lived next to the Grand Canyon after about a couple years of driving out of my driveway and looking out over the great awe-inspiring expanse of the Grand Canyon, I would start to call it the ditch. <laughs> I think human beings have this amazing capacity to become so habituated to the miraculous and the amazing that we just think it's kind of normal. We stop noticing it. I remember when I first moved to Florida, I was really in love with the evocative, romantic look of the Spanish moss that hung from every tree. It just looks so cool. But by the time I left, I was just annoyed with Spanish moss. <laughs> Parasites live in there, and it actually kills your trees, you know, and you just kind of, I stopped seeing it as a beautiful thing. 
And I think human beings are just sort of this way. And I think when I first grasped the beautiful, excellent truth of the gospel, I was so in love with it. I was so in a, like a, a raw way conscious of my need. And then somehow over time, something gets calloused over. I just get habituated to it. And I say words like grace and forgiveness and mercy with about as much passion as if I'm reading a grocery list or something. And I, I stop appreciating the exceptional rare beauty that those words contain. So every once in a while, guys, we need to pause and consider again this treasure. We need to pick up this pearl of great value so that our hearts can be cut wide open again to an awareness of the amazing, awesome, excellent, wonderful thing that we have found. It is truly, it's just amazing. It's a world-changing truth. We who were drowning in sin debt, and like Adam and Eve who hid when they heard God walking in the garden, we had to, we too had to constantly dodge our creditor God, avoiding him, his judgment, his wrath, pretending like we weren't home when he came knocking at the door of our hearts. But in Jesus, we stumbled on a treasure, the means to come out from under the weight of that crushing sin debt. Jesus paid it all, and through him, we can once again know freedom from that awful, terrible debt and all of its consequences. We can re-enter the joy of God's presence without fear of judgment or wrath or even reminder of what a horrible debtor we used to be. Amazingly, in Jesus, we find that the debt is not just removed, our negative balance is not just restored to zero. No, in Christ, we go from being a debtor to a co-heir. All the riches of heaven belong to us. This is an incredible reversal. We who were constantly in fear of death and judgment and wrath, have found in Jesus life unending, days without end, and what a life. In John 10.10, Jesus says that he didn't come to just give us life, but life abundant. Those of us who have found Jesus know what a treasure he is. But sometimes we need to be reminded. The doctrine of grace... When I talk about the pearl of great value, this person who goes and studies all the pearls, and then he finds that one pearl which is set apart from the rest and is of such superior excellence and value that it outweighs the value of all the other pearls combined. He says, I'm going to get rid of all these other pearls so I can lay hold of this one. That thing which qualitatively sets the, great, the pearl of the kingdom apart from every other pearl is grace. Grace is the thing, the most, the biggest thing that differentiates Christianity and the gospel from every other world religion on the planet. Grace, this is it. What is it? Grace is the idea, the uniquely Christian idea, that God has done for us all that's needed and you have nothing to contribute to your own salvation. <laughs> this is so antithetical 
to every other belief system on the planet, it's mind-numbingly repetitious to study the scheme elsewhere. Here's how it works. I talk about this a lot. But every other world religion is set up in this way. God has what you need, and you must do business with him to get it. (laughs) You have to jump through his hoops. You have to obey his laws. You have to set check boxes A, B, C, D, and E. And if you do, then God will owe you. You will have earned the thing. Grace is very different. Christianity is very different. There are many more passages I could share, but consider just these two. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Wait a minute. I don't have to do anything? I don't have to satisfy any of your righteous demands? Could it really be true when it says that it's a gift of God, not a result of works? Is that really what he means, or is there fine print? Or what about Romans 6.23? For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, a wage is something you earn, and a gift is the opposite of that. It's given not because of anything that's owed to you, or that you've deserved, it's given because of the character and the excellence of the one who gives. This is grace. This is qualitatively different. This is what sets apart this pearl from all others. Given the great central importance of grace to the whole scheme of salvation in the gospel, it might surprise us then to find Jesus seeming to say in these parables that the kingdom of heaven can be purchased like a field or like a pearl. There's a bit of a paradox here. There's kind of a troubling thought creeping in. If it is that way, then what do you make of all those other passages that speak so plainly and so forcefully to the fact that it's a free gift? that could never be purchased or earned or deserved? Can something be free and still cost us everything? This is why it is so important that we define the treasure not as a something, but as a somebody. We're going to come back to that thought here in just a second. Once I find my place. (laughs) Here we go. Uh, It's a difficult question, and I'm going to do my best this morning to reconcile the language of this parable with the all-critical, load-bearing pillar of grace. It says in both parables that the finder of the treasure and of the pearl sold all that they had to possess it. And brothers and sisters, this strikes me as a very dangerous point in our study of God's Word this morning. We have to understand this correctly. And in order to understand how something can be free and yet cost us everything, we must rightly understand what the treasure and the pearl represent. Do the treasure and the pearl represent a thing or a person? Let me frame it this way. The treasure and also the pearl are symbols in these parables of either a something, salvation, 
or a someone, Jesus? And how we answer this question is critical. If we answer that the treasure is symbolic of a thing, salvation, what they found was salvation, then we are saying that the treasure of salvation must be obtained from God. And as a result, we will come to view God as someone with whom we must negotiate to get what we want or need. And do you know what that sounds like to me? Paganism. The pagan or non-Christian thinks this way. God has what we want. How will we get it? We'll buy it. We'll earn it. We'll strive. We'll worship. We'll meet his demands. And, of course, the danger in the view that comes from defining the treasure as something rather than someone is that we then are stuck trying to get something we want from a God that we may not. Christianity is about getting God. It's about relationship. And this, again, is why it's so important that we define the treasure not as a something but as a somebody. And when we do that, when we look upon the treasure or the pearl of great value as Jesus, when we do that, it then becomes clear how something can be free and yet require our all. What God wants us to want and what we need desperately is him, not something from him. That sort of nonsense belongs in the realm of outside Christianity. The treasure is not the gift of salvation, it is the giver of salvation. Jesus, the person, is the pearl of great value. He is the treasure. God is not saying through these parables, you can buy something from me if you're dedicated enough. I, we can illustrate it this way. At my wedding, when Sarah and I took our vows, I promised before witnesses that I would forsake all others. Why did I say that? <laughs> was it because I wanted something from Sarah and that was the price demanded of me? Or was it because I wanted Sarah and nobody else would do? And did Sarah under, understand those words which I spoke, I'll forsake all others, as a purchase price? <laughs> no. They were a statement, not of what I was willing to pay as though it was a sacrifice, those words were a declaration of her value and her worth to me. But you know what? God doesn't want something from you either. He wants you, all of you, and he will not share you with other lesser gods. So how can something be freely given and yet require your all? This parable is not describing a purchase transaction by which goods are exchanged between two independent parties. It is describing something more like a marriage by which both parties forsake all others and find their joy in one another. I love Hebrews 12 too, which says of Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. And I think that that joy that was set before him was the church was you, was having us re reconciled to the Father. God has said in his word, I will be your God and you will be my people. We should come away from our study of this passage with the heartfelt understanding that in God we find something so wonderful, so complete, so perfect, so satisfying to our souls that we stand ready and willing to forsake all others. 
But if you love the gifts of God more than the giver, then you're just stuck trying to get something you want from somebody you don't. And that's not Christianity. If this describes you this morning, I want you to see again the pearl of great value. I want you to pick it up and examine it and understand it. I have good news. You don't have to leave this place in that same condition, in that same way of relating to God. Maybe this is the day that was appointed for you to find the pearl of great value and understand his value for the first time. I would be honored to pray with you. You could ask Jesus into your heart as Lord and Savior. You can forsake all others and lay hold of that treasure today. Because the treasure and the pearl represent the person of Jesus, this language about selling all must be understood first and foremost as a warning against idolatry. What is idolatry? Well, to continue our marriage illustration, idolatry is to God what adultery is to a spouse. So I think we can define idolatry as anything that keeps us from being faithful to God, from following Him. From There are things that we prefer over him. And it's very interesting to me that in these two parables, Jesus uses what are possibly the most common objects of idolatry in the world today. Money, wealth, treasure, pearls. I don't know about pearls, but <laughs> it's broadly representative of wealth, perhaps. And he uses these things to demonstrate the emptiness and perishability of such things. There is no lasting eternal joy to be found in stuff. I used to be troubled by the language of passages like Luke 14.33, where Jesus says, So therefore, any of you who does not give up everything that he has cannot be my disciple. Give up everything that he has cannot be my disciple. If I understand this word rightly about disciples, I want to be a disciple more than anything else. And so that's some troubling language, perhaps. And it was troubling to me because I had stuff, stuff that I loved. Do I really need to give away all my stuff in order to become a Christ follower? I say not necessarily. Maybe, but not necessarily. Thank you. I know, I'm like the swamp thing up here. My goodness. It's like, Josh must be guilty about something. Let's see, where was I? Swamp thing. Okay, let's see. A swamp thing. I now understand Luke 14.33 as a rewording of the first commandment. It says, you shall have no other gods before me. When Jesus says, unless you give up everything that you have, you cannot be my disciples, he is essentially rewording that first commandment, you shall have no other gods beside me. I'm not going to share room in your heart with any other god. Even so, our sin-clouded hearts are sometimes tempted into spiritual infidelity. The emptiness of idolatry, especially the idolatry of stuff, is powerfully illustrated in a story that we find in Luke 18. You might know it. It's the story of the rich young ruler. It says this, And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this is, a, this is an incredible question, right? Because he's saying, I want the thing. <laughs> he, he's, he has framed with his question the idea that what's desired is a thing, not a somebody. 
He comes to the somebody and says, how can I get the thing? Oftentimes the questions we ask will lead us to a certain set of answers. And I want you to understand Jesus' answer is essentially the same thing that's at the center of the pearl of great value in the treasure. Here's what he says. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And the ruler says, all these I've kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Now, on the one hand, this passage is challenging to the whole idea of grace. It says, what must I do to get eternal life? And Jesus says, you have to do something. That's problematic, right? What he's really saying is, he's looking, he knows this man, and he looks into his heart, and he sees you already have a God, (laughs) You have to get rid of the idol of the wealth that you've built in your heart. You shall have no other God but me. It's interesting that his says, you have to get rid of that other God and then come follow me. (laughs) His, His instructions terminate on a somebody, not a something. And so he's not saying to this man that the way to salvation is through some works, but it is certainly through letting go of the world, you cannot say God is my Lord and then give space to another God in your heart. That would be infidelity. But it is hard that he answers the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life by giving this, these instructions? Jesus is about to give him a painful lesson that this life is not about the acquisition of things, but about a saving relationship with a person. Jesus, who has a perfect and unobstructed view of the man's heart, sees clearly the idol of wealth that he's built there. It is his God. And outwardly, this man is squeaky clean. He's led a morally upright life. He believes himself good. But Jesus sees in him an idolatrous love for money and being a jealous God, Jesus goes right for the jugular. In asking this young man to give away all his wealth, Jesus is saying, you must forsake all others. Unless you renounce all that you have, you cannot be my disciple. And this begs the question, God has a clear, unobstructed view of my heart this morning and yours. What does he see there? What things or people compete for his affection in your heart? I believe that all people are tempted to idolatry in one form or another, and Jesus is still just as ruthless about going after our idols today as he was then. He is the pearl of great value, and he confronts all those lesser pearls. Uh, I'm reminded at this point of, you know, that passage in the Old Testament where when the Israelites first came to the promised land, We're told in the Bible that one of the reasons they did not go over into the promised land is because they feared 
that their wives and their children would be made a prey, is what the Bible says. If we go over there, our kids are going to die. In that moment, we see that they are choosing something over God. Even the best things in our lives, the good things, the wholesome things, can become a replacement to God if we prefer them and put them above God. I have to believe that they did far more damage to their children by living out in front of them such a compromised faith as that than if they had gone over and modeled for them fearless courage and dependence on God. An idol can take many forms. It can take the shape of anything that's keeping you from following God in obedience today. But when we gaze with wonder on how wonderful and perfect and worthy God is, we can then count it as no sacrifice to forsake all others. God is what is most satisfying to our souls. He is what we need. Psalm 34.8 says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. The missionary Jim Elliott once remarked, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Uh, Jim Elliott gave his life, famously, in South America, but he counted it as gain because he had found the treasure and was willing to give his all for it. Philippians 3, 7 through 9 says this, For whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. The surpassing worth of a somebody, not a something. He goes on, For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Gain Christ. Uh, let me pray. Well, dear Heavenly Father, uh, this is both, uh, these parables that we have looked at this morning are both sh a shining, beautiful thing, the promise of a treasure and a pearl of great value, but God, there's also the difficult truth that you will not share space in our hearts with another, and that by laying hold of the pearl of great value or the treasure Father, we must of necessity let go of other things. And so, Father, we ask you, Lord, that you'd help us to do that. Father, if there is anything in our hearts, like the rich young ruler, which threatens to replace you there at the center of our affections and what we put our trust in, Father, I pray that you would, by the Holy Spirit, convict us there and help us to to, to tear down that stronghold of idolatry in our hearts and minds. Father, we have found in you the pearl of great value. And Father, we need your help to let go of the world. And so, Father, we ask you by your Holy Spirit to help us to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.